standing for the reading of God's word. And that is the heart that drives missions, that his great name would be seen by all and that his glory goes beyond all fame. Well, we're going to continue in our series on the life of the patriarchs along with missions focus this morning. So our, our passage of scripture will be found in Genesis 25 verses 19 through 34. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it will be projected behind me on this screen and on the various monitors around the room. So Genesis 25, verses 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's continue to worship the Lord through song. Thank all of you for your prayers as I was gone last week. Um, I heard it was... A great blessing to be able to pray as a church and, and worship together as a church. And um, though I did not like having strep throat and not being able to talk very well and not feel the best, I'm I'm glad that God used it for good. And I do thank you all for your uh, many prayers. I had so many people text and call and uh, talk to me, just wishing me well. Um, I would like to bow one more time in a word of prayer to ask God for His mind and his heart on these this text and that he would open not just my heart and not just use my mouth but use your minds and, and the spirit would fill you uh, as you listen and, and me as I speak. So if you would bow your heads with me, that would be great. Father, we thank you that um, you are at work and that you Uh, are the one who dictates our lives, that uh, when we don't see a way, that you see a way. When things come up unexpectedly as last week, that you provide, that your spirit moves. 
Father, I pray that your spirit would move this morning, that I would be completely subject to your will as I speak. Father, that each one of us, uh, with all that is going on, that we would hear your word, we would know your heart, and we do thank you for all that we've already heard this morning and pray that all this would be molding together as we seek to do your will in our lives. In your name I pray, amen. Well, Ellie and I, my wife Ellie, uh, we just got back from Colorado last night. We were at a, a wedding of a good friend, and um, as you looked at this wedding, um, you would think, well, that's fairly typical. My friend is about six foot two. He's got a, a big manly beard, kind of just kind of this all-American guy. And uh, his now wife is from Colorado. He's from California, and she's very typically uh, American. But as you looked a little deeper, things started to unravel a little bit as far as a normal, typical wedding that you would think of. Look. The most evident of these times was when the photographer came in and she goes, do you have her ring? And he goes, no, but I have my ring. And she looked very confused and scattered. You could see she, she was thinking, why does this guy have his ring on? And so she goes, well, where's her ring? And he goes, probably on her finger. And the photographer was like, okay. And he just stopped. And he's like, well... It's a long story. Here, here's my ring. Give it to the maid of honor. And she, confused, took the ring and walked away. What she didn't know is that currently my friend Amos and his now wife Elizabeth live in Tokyo and met there. He actually was born and raised there. His dad was born and raised there and his grandfather moved there to be a missionary. He's more Japanese than most Japanese people I know. When we were growing up together, he, he would uh, help people with their Japanese homework. Japanese people would come to him, this tall, bearded, all-American kind of guy that you would think. And so, the wedding was actually their second wedding. They had gotten married on Monday in Japan, and then this was the wedding for her side of the family. And so while on the surface it kind of felt like a normal wedding, more and more you were going, this is the most interesting thing ever. Because they they had already been married once. And this was their second wedding. And so uh, for all of us there, you noticed that things were a little bit different. And that it wasn't just a typical wedding. When you scratched beneath the surface, it wasn't all that we expected and was normal. And the narrative before us today is very similar to this. If we think about it on the surface, we all know this story. But it's not as simple as we might expect. It's a faithful standard in Sunday school, right? We know Jacob. We know Esau. He's got the red hair like me, but got the hair that I didn't. Right? He's this big, hairy twin. If you were raised in church, you know both of them. We know that it involves food. I won't go into that too much because we'll get excited about the potluck after church. We know that Jacob convinces Esau to sell his birthright for stew. We know all about goat skins and how this kind of started the tradition of men using musk to smell good. We know uh, that this is all about trickery. We know this story. But beyond the plot line, we often don't look deeper as to what this story has to offer. We look for guidance in God's Word in every part of it, And as we do, this story can leave us a little puzzled. In our series in Genesis, we've been identifying uh, each of the accounts of the patriarchs as stories of grace, transformation, 
or mission. And as we look at this story this morning, the only transformation that seems to happen is negative. And the only mission that each one of the characters seems to be on appears to be self-seeking. But if then what's left, a story of grace, it seems that the characters in this story, the parents, Isaac and Rebekah and the two sons, Jacob and Esau, are completely unaware of its presence. They're completely preoccupied with their own agenda. They're only focused on their own end. We must then also look at this story in the larger context of the patriarchs. We saw Abraham at the beginning of this series was given a promise that his seed, his offspring, would be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. That God would bless the nations through him. We've seen how God uh, worked his plan and ruled out different avenues uh, in fulfilling that promise. And then three weeks ago, we saw Pastor Ralph show us God's fingerprints uh, were all over the finding of Isaac's wife, Rebecca. It not only demonstrated his involvement in the details, but it pointed to the next chapter of the fulfillment of this promise. Isaac and Rebecca were clearly the line that God was going to use to bless Abraham and his descendants. But this is what causes complications for us this morning. Because the Isaac and Rebekah that we meet and dive deeper in with the story today are far from the ones that we left kind of riding off into the sunset, that romantic meeting as she crossed cultures and country to meet him. They, along with their two sons, Jacob and Esau, have their own interests in mind. In fact, all four members of this family are pulling in opposite directions, kind of like a four-way tug of war. They're each holding on tightly to their ways, struggling against the others, and all the while, whether they realize it or not, they're struggling against God. And so once we get beyond the kid-friendly version and get deeper into the depravity that directs each of the members of these families, we're forced to wonder what this story has to offer. And as we look at it, we wonder, in the context of the patriarchs, how can God's promise survive a family who's more concerned with their own plans than with his? How does God's purpose play out in a family desiring only of their own priorities? As we dive deeper into this uh, narrative this morning, we find the answer. But we also must realize that this is more than just the next chapter of the story of the patriarchs of Genesis. It does more than serve as a bridge from God's promise to its fulfillment. It also sheds light on our own lives. Like the parables that Jesus told the people who would listen while he was on this earth, this story causes a self-reflection in your life and mine. While we read this uh, account asking how God will move forward his promise through Isaac and then his sons, we must also think on the connections between this story and our own lives. What parts of this story tug at our heart and force our minds to wrestle? For this story is part of God's word and has been given to us to inform our own lives. And so as we approach Genesis chapter 5 and then Genesis chapter 27 this morning, we must ask ourselves, where would God be shining light on our lives? Where do we see ourselves seeking our own end and not God's? So we begin in Genesis chapter 5, verses 19. If you have a Bible, I would ask that you turn there because this part of the Bible, as one commentator pointed out, uh, is is like a trailer for chapter 27 that's to come. This kind of exposes and sets up uh, what we're going to see later. We re-meet Isaac and Rebekah. And like her mother-in-law before, Rebekah is barren. We can imagine that she knows the promise that was laid upon Isaac to continue this family, and yet she feels the same thing her mother-in-law Sarah felt. 
Isaac, meanwhile, has been interceding on her behalf for years, praying and approaching frustration as they too, just like Abraham and Sarah, are feeling the need to have a child to continue God's promise. But the window into the lives that we're given in chapter 25 is with the hope of answered prayer. But what we find in the first uh, verses of our passage is that in uh, Genesis chapter 25, verses uh, 19 through 21, there her pregnancy quickly turns sour because she's brought about with so much pain that she doesn't know what to do and it feels more like a curse from God than a blessing and and a continuation of His promise. But the Lord's answer is more than she could have imagined. Twins. Two children in her room. In her womb. But though these are twins, it's not like the twins that we think of today. These twins don't have a bond that is unbreakable. From the very beginning, they are opposed. It says in verse 23, Two nations are in your room. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. We can imagine Rebecca's confusion. This was supposed to be the fulfillment of promise. And yet, this doesn't line up with how God would usually work. How does this play into His promise? How does this How is this going to unfold? We see the next scene, the childbirth. We're given an intimate look at their birth as we can imagine the nurse delivering the babies. She takes the first, red and hairy. But before she's able to hand him off to another nurse nearby, she has to remove the hand of his brother from his heel. Handing the first, she delivers the second baby. She hands them both to Rebecca, commenting to the tired mother that the second child grabbed the heel of the first. She looks at her two sons and calls the first Esau for his appearance and the second Jacob for his grabbing of the heel, a reminder of what has just happened and that the word of the Lord is with uh, Jacob as he grabs the heel. Where in a movie, this opening scene of their birth would give way to a black scene, a black screen and it would show a grown-up Esau. We know it's him because he's still hairy and red. Over his shoulders slung a deer with an arrow protruding from his neck. He has grown up and become a a great hunter. And so he provides his father with uh, lots of food and game and meat. And so Esau and his father Isaac are very close. Now Esau and Isaac tried to get Jacob to also go hunting, but he never took to it. Instead, hanging out around the tents. And so consequently, Isaac or Jacob and his mother Rebecca are, are tied together. The favoritism uh, with each uh, father and son and mother and son opposes the family. It divides them. It's no surprise then that we find this scene in verses 29 through 34. Esau comes in one day, hungry, starving from... Um, from hunting and Jacob knows that this is going to happen we can imagine that Jacob is casually stirring a pot of stew he hears his brother coming as Esau walks in as he often does from hunting he says give me some of that stew the lack of love between the two is clear as Jacob without hesitation replies sell me your birthright now we can imagine Esau slightly confused can't even figure out what he's talking about. Why does he care? He's hungry. 
He says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now clearly Esau, with all these words, is not about to die of hunger. He has time to think. But he doesn't really care. He just wants the food and doesn't care what it takes. Motionless, Jacob replies, swear to me now. There's no hot hesitation in Esau's voice as he swears away his birthright. We as uninformed readers would think this is insignificant, yet what Esau has just done is sworn away his double portion of his father's inheritance. But it appears Esau has no regard for anyone else's blessing as he takes the food, eats, and then immediately leaves. Jacob, meanwhile, we can imagine, takes a bowl of the stew and probably was the best tasting stew that he'd ever had. It's not hard to guess that from this event on, that there was no desire for reconciliation between the two brothers. And that the animosity that resulted uh, gave tension between their parents, Isaac and Rebekah. Thus we have a family whose relationships are far from perfect. And they're getting worse as time goes on. And so as we approach Genesis 27, the only other factor that we have to add is, we, is that one that we find in the last two verses before chapter 27. Esau, in opposition to his parents' will, marries two Hittites. And it says in verse 35, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Yet for all the bitterness that these women caused, they did not destroy the bond between Isaac and Esau. They stayed close as, as, Esau, as Isaac got older. But in the back of Isaac's mind, he knew the, the oracle, the word that was spoken to Rebekah before these children were born. The younger will rule. The older will serve the younger. He couldn't get it out of his head. He knew that this is what God had declared, and yet he was close with his son Esau. And so, as he sat, because now he was blind, he would sit and think. He put together a plan in his mind. He thought about the blessing. He knew that Jacob had already stolen Esau's birthright, and so he was going to make it right by giving Esau the blessing. So what we find in the beginning of chapter 27 is that Isaac calls for Esau. My son, he says. Esau comes and says, here I am. This solidifies in our mind that these two were close while Jacob and Rebekah were completely distant. Isaac says, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. In reality, we know that Isaac was not quite as near death as he makes it out to be. And so what we see to be true, what we can understand is that Isaac no longer wants to wait on, the, on God's plan. He no longer wants to wait to see when he can bless both his sons. He wants to put his plan into place, blessing Esau, the son that he favors. So Esau leaves and goes and gathers his things to go out hunting. But what we find is that hiding behind a wall or a curtain is Rebekah. She has heard the whole thing and she's not surprised for she suspected that her husband might do something like this. And she knows that they were separated. She knows that they were opposed, but she, says she can't believe that he would go this far. It feels as if this is the final thrust of the knife in her back. 
the choice of his heir against their marriage and relationship. God had made his choice clear, she thought. She had told Isaac the younger was to, the older was to serve the younger. Jacob was the one who was to rule. And yet she had gone against this. So she knew that she had to do something. She needed to intervene to ensure that uh, Jacob, from the one whom she favored from day one, would be blessed. And as she pondered it, she justified it more and more in her head. God had given the oracle. God had spoken His word. So therefore, in her intervening, she was, in a sense, enacting God's will. She was doing something that was right. It's a feeling that maybe some of us know this morning. The inner desire to do something that we feel gets at what God would want. But we can't put away the feeling that we're going about it the wrong way. But Rebecca puts this out of her mind. She checks her surroundings, makes sure that no one has seen her, and she goes off to Jacob's tent. She gets his attention. Jacob, I need you to listen. This is essential. I heard your father speaking to Esau, your brother, uh, that he's going to bless him. And she says, Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare from the delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. You can imagine that Jacob is startled. His mother is completely going against his father. He knows there's a divide in the family, but this will completely destroy the family. He doesn't like his brother, but this seems like an ill-thought and a risky plan. So he tries to reason, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. What if my father feels my arms? And then he mocks me, and he thinks I'm mocking him, and brings a curse upon me instead of a blessing. It's a legitimate concern. This could go very wrong and could incur not just the wrath of his father, but of God. But as he says this, Rebecca interrupts. Let the curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. Her urgency and intensity trumps his judgment. Though he's not even sure if it's possible to transfer a curse or a blessing, he doesn't dare go against her command, and so he goes off and finds these goats so that he can prepare a stew. Jacob's trepidation eventually leaves as he gathers the goats, and when he returns, his mother has gathered Esau's clothing. We can imagine as she hurriedly puts them on Jacob and then takes some uh, goat skins and puts them on his arms. She closes her eyes after he's dressed, gives him a hug, and checks to see if he feels like Esau. She doesn't say anything because she knows, though it's a clever plan, it's not perfect. It could easily fall apart. So she gives Jacob the stew and gives him one last look. She reminds him, this is her plan. It will work. He doesn't need to be afraid. He just needs to obey. Jacob enters his father's presence. The blind old man looks up hearing his entrance. Jacob nervously says, My father. In his blindness, Isaac doesn't know which son is before him. Who are you, my son? He replies. Jacob, now heart pounding, says, I am Esau, your firstborn. 
He says, I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. His souls, his uh, words spill out, giving away his lack of confidence, though frail and old in appearance. Isaac's mind begins to question what is happening before him. How did you find the meat so quickly, my son? He asks, hoping that any falsehood will be exposed. Jacob's witty response makes up for his previous answer. Because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Still unconvinced, Isaac pauses and says, Come near, that I might feel you, my son, to know whether you are really Esau or not. Jacob goes to his father. He looks at the goatskins on his arms, hoping that they will be enough. His father quietly feels them and says, The voice is Jacob's. The hands are the hands of Esau. Jacob doesn't dare say anything. Isaac, we can imagine, meanwhile, thinks to himself, maybe uh, my unease is because of this plan of mine to just bless one son. Maybe that's just why I'm confused. So he asks his son one final time, Are you really my son Esau? Jacob responds only with two words, I am can imagine that he's sweating underneath his brother's clothes, that uh, moisture is gathering under the skin of these goats. And it wasn't supposed to take this long. He was supposed to come in. His father was supposed to eat and drink and he was supposed to be blessed. Esau was going to come at any moment and it would ruin the entire thing. But Isaac says, bring it near to me that I might eat of my son's game and bless you. Hurriedly, Jacob brings the stew along with a cup of wine. He watches his father eat, knowing that his mother's stew is perfect. This is the part of the plan that will not fail. And so he's glad because he knows that his father is the happiest and the most satisfied after he has eaten. And he sits back and he's thankful and he says, Come, let me bless you. And then we... Hear these words in verses 27 through 29. See the smell of my son. is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curse you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. We see that in verse 30, immediately Jacob leaves. It's reminiscent of Esau and his birthright. He gets the food and he goes. Uh, Jacob gets the blessing and he's gone. And it says immediately, when he was scarcely out the door, Esau came in. We can imagine that Esau's tired from hunting. But he comes in confidently and he says, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. Then, his excitement turns to confusion as his father, who normally knows his voice, replies, Who are you? Esau hurt replies, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. As Esau replies, his heart begins to drop because he knows something is very wrong. Isaac, his father, begins to shake, trembling as though he is cold, but out of a realization that he knows what was off. He's figured out what was wrong. He knows that it wasn't Esau who had come. It wasn't his firstborn. And so Esau watches and listens in horror, tears rolling down his face as his father says, Who was it then that hunted game 
and brought it to me, and I ate before you came. And I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. Isaac knows it is done. He has blessed Jacob and there is no going back. Esau, we can imagine, throws himself at his father and cries out, Bless me also, O my father. But Isaac confirms what Esau already suspects. Your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. And we can imagine that as he says it, Isaac thinks back to the words spoken to Rebekah before the twins' birth. The, young, the older shall serve the younger. Isaac didn't want it to be true. He had come up with this plot. He favored Esau, but somehow Jacob had succeeded. Esau's sorrow turns to anger as he comments, Is he not rightfully called Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and now he has taken my blessing. But then he turns back to despair and says, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? We see in verses 37 and 38 that Isaac reiterates the blessing spoken over Jacob. He has set him up to be lord over his brothers. Esau falls deeper and deeper into hopeless anger and says, Have you not one blessing for me, my father? What Isaac says is more of a prophecy than a blessing. In verses 39 and 40 he says, Behold, Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. The only comfort in the words is that eventually Esau will escape his brother. We can imagine that at the close of this scene, that the household was not a happy place. Isaac knew that his, Rebe- his wife Rebekah had masterminded their deception. Esau knew that Jacob was to be blessed. Isaac knew that his son had betrayed him in his deception. And Rebekah knew that Esau found comfort in the fact that he was going to kill his brother. So in the close of the story, we find Rebekah sending her beloved son Jacob off to the home of a familiar character, Laban, her brother, who a few weeks ago, Pastor Ralph pointed out, was self-seeking and self-preserving. We can imagine this final scene. If the beginning of chapter 25 is a trailer, this is that closing scene. It's bittersweet because in one sense they have succeeded. Rebecca's the heroine of sorts, but at the same time, she is the antagonist of our story. And so she watches as Jacob packs up and leaves, saying a tearful goodbye. Her plan has worked, but at the expense of her son. She hopes that it will be for a short time. But what she doesn't know is that she'll never see him again. The consequence of this blessing has come at a great price. And as the final curtain closes on our story, our minds are drawn back to the initial promise given to Abraham that his offspring would be blessed and that through him all nations would be blessed. And it recalls the question at the beginning. How can God's promise survive a family who's more concerned with their own plans than with God's? They very clearly are all seeking their own end, fulfilling their own purposes, scheming actively and silently to enact a plan, disregarding those around them, and most importantly, God's desire. So it's here we must ask ourselves this morning, what is our end? What is my goal? How does it line up with God's desires and purposes? It may be this morning that we find ourselves uh, going out somewhat like Isaac. We know God's desire. We've heard His word. We know His purposes. And yet we are passively avoiding what He would have for us. 
we stay away from some relationships. We pursue others because they're easy. We eventually know that it's too late to to go back and so we just continue on in in the way that we've been giving because it's comfortable. Blessing the one son and not the other because we just want our plan to succeed. Have we sunk into one of those rhythms where we know our plan and we know it opposes God's but we don't want to think about it? Isaac's conclusion in this story, his violent shaking should give a testimony to what could happen to you and I. If we're here this morning allowing comfortability to keep from living in his will, we must heed the warning of Isaac. Maybe we identify with Rebecca. We can romanticize her role in this story and yet uh, we cannot miss her disregard for those around her. She pursues that which she thinks is right at the expense of her marriage and motherhood. We must not miss that she does what she thinks is right. But it's the wrong way to go about it. And it causes uh, great damage to the relationships around her. Whether you are married or not, we need to take note that sometimes we think something's going in the right direction and we think we make a right choice, but we don't take into account those around us. It should cause each one of us to think. We can never let what we think is right give license to disrespect those around us. To, to uh, disregard relationships, to disregard friendships for the sake of something that we want to do. God will not push us and place us in a place where we are doing something and yet it's causing damage and causing hurt to those around us. No one can deny that we live in a self-seeking world that our world tells us to go after whatever we want. As we look at Jacob this morning, uh, from the beginning he schemes and he deceives those around him. But what we see this morning is we can't miss the answer to our question. God's promises can succeed in the midst of a family that is self-seeking because his promises are not based on human merit. His promises uh, continue through Jacob because he has chosen him despite his failures and with his flawed character. And as we look at Jacob, an uh, undeserving recipient of God's chosen line, we have to see that this tells us not about him or not about Esau, his brother, but about God. God acts and moves to accomplish his purposes. Uh, even when we are like Isaac or like Jacob, when we try to go our own direction, he chooses to shine light in this world despite our desire to deceive, lie, or seek our own purposes. His promises are not based on our ability to hold up our own end. He will work no matter what. And as we reflect on God's purposes being enacted with our failures, we can't uh, miss how this chapter of the story in, in the larger patriarch's story reflects the story of the Gospels. A people seeking their own good and ignoring God's desires and yet God works to fulfill the next part of His plan. In the same way, God in the midst of people ignoring Him sent Jesus who, though none of us deserved it, were even seeking it, came to save and fulfill a promise. Though we didn't deserve or ask for it, He came. And so as we go out reflecting on our lives, looking at the failures of this family, reflecting on our own, hopefully it moves us to action. To consider how we might be pursuing our own desires instead of God's. But 
though this story doesn't feel like it ends in hope, we can go out from here noting our failures, noting where we might be self-seeking with hope in mind because Jesus Christ came not based on our merit and He doesn't save us based on our workings, our will, our ability to get our lives back together, but He does it in grace. He does it because He has chosen to save us. And so we leave uh, this story looking at it with its hopelessness and its self-seeking action and we look at our own lives and know that sometimes that's where we are. But we know that we rest in the fact that God came in the form of Jesus Christ and saved not based on our merit, based on His grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You that we can be gathered. We thank You 